The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, church. So good to be with you all and uh, excited to look at God's Word together with you. We are going to be back in our study through Revelation, and this morning we're in chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn there. Revelation chapter 15. We're getting towards the end of these seven visions, and we're about to hit uh, some bulls. And can you guess how many bulls there will be? Seven. That's right. That's right. So Revelation 15, verses 1 to 8. Let's hear God's word together. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that we can just study right through your word and we can encounter beautiful and marvelous and majestic things. Lord, we confess some things are hard to understand. We confess some things are difficult for us even when we do understand them. But Lord, we thank you that you are not a God that we have invented, but you are the true and living God. And you speak to us, Lord, for our blessing, um, for our opportunity, so that we can know you, so that we can trust in you. And in this case, in Revelation, you speak to us so that we can endure in loving Christ, all our lives, no matter the cost, until the end. So do your work in us, Lord, we pray. I ask for your Holy Spirit, please help me. Help me to teach this faithfully and clearly, and we pray for each person who listens to this message that you would speak to that person individually, personally, profoundly, uh, that he or she would hear your voice and respond in faith and trust and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever noticed that sometimes 
two things that seem like they could never go together actually end up going together pretty well. Have you ever noticed that? For me, it was the first time I had salt with chocolate. Uh, have you had that before? Same idea, salted caramel. The first time you're like, eh. Then my daughter made these chocolate chip cookies with that kind of thick salt on top of it, and I was sold. Okay? Two things, sometimes, you, they don't seem like they would go together. Actually, they go together really well. There's probably hundreds of illustrations like that with food. Uh, don't you think it's also true in relationships sometimes? Two things that don't seem like they would go together, together actually go together pretty well. Uh, maybe you've had the experience where, um, I know you all think your first impressions of people are 100% accurate. Have you ever discovered that occasionally they aren't? And someone you thought, that eh, would never go well with me. Before you know it, you realize how dear that person is to you. What it meant to you. I, I remember 20-something years ago. When I started dating Marsha, there were people who thought that was a really bad idea. And of course, they thought that was a bad idea for her. No, no one thought that was a bad idea for me. But I would say after nearly 21 years of marriage, huh? Our love's deeper than ever. Two things people didn't think would go well together do. There's two things in our passage like that. Very seriously, two things that don't seem like they go together. And in this passage, they absolutely go together. You know what they are? The first one is singing. There we see it again. Every time you see God's people in Revelation, especially before the throne, what are these people doing? They're singing. What are they always holding? Harps. We've seen it again and again. It's a strange thing about God's people. They work really hard to get together and sing. It's fundamental to us. We do it every time. We do it all the time. We sing. But what is it that goes with singing in this passage? And if I was going to ask you, what is it that goes best with singing? You know, this or that. You know what it is in this passage that goes well with singing? God's wrath. God's wrath poured out in ways we haven't seen yet. God's wrath poured out comprehensively powerfully, fundamentally, God's wrath against sin and the sinners who love it, that's inspiring God's people to sing. Strange. I wonder how that idea strikes you even right now, the idea of God's wrath. Um, maybe like no other issue, this, this issue brings up questions, hard questions. And just by the way, that's okay um, I would love to talk with you about those questions or doubts on that issue or how to, how to sort out this or that. Um, those questions are welcome here. But for now, our text is telling us that there's a way in which, seen rightly, God's wrath, in a way, seen rightly, should, make, should actually inspire you to sing. And of course, it's not ultimately about the tone you're singing or how well you're singing. Singing it, singing is really about your heart towards God. So it wants to inspire praise, worship, reliance on the Lord. And in the context of Revelation, this, this picture is meant to inspire you to keep enduring no matter what. No matter how hard it gets to be, to be faithful to Christ, his gospel, the call of the gospel, no matter how hard it gets, this text is to, to warm your heart towards that. 
as you sing in light of God's wrath. So, uh, we are back in Revelation this morning. I want to see three main things with you we'll try to unpack. Number one is the finish. The finish. The reason I use that word, it's used twice in this passage, verse 1, verse 8. There's this, there's this way in which God's wrath is coming comprehensively, and with it, the text says, it's finished. It's poured out. It's, it's uh, fulfilled. So first, the finish. Second, the throne. There's this interlude in 15, chapter 15. Uh, that we see before we get to chapter 16. So next week in 16, we'll look at these seven bowls of wrath in more detail. But before we get there, there's this interlude where we go back to the throne of God, the, the same throne we saw in chapter 4, and, and we learn something about God and his reign, and, the, and then we see who is, who is there near his throne. So the finish, then the throne, and then third, the song. Unpack the song. Coming from the throne in the face of that wrath, they're singing. So we want to see what it is they're singing about and then join the song. So first, the finish. Just remember verse 1, I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. So how's John feeling as he sees this vision? It's overwhelming. And then you get seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Seven angels, seven plagues, going to be seven bowls. Why is that important? What does seven represent over and over again? Fulfillment, completion. So here it is. It's all of it right here, comprehensive. So that's the setup here. We just want to remember as we get back into Revelation, it's a, it's a unique kind of literature, isn't it? It's not an epistle like Romans where Paul gives you kind of linear thought, linear argument. It's not like that. It's not, it's not historical narrative like 1 Samuel or Acts where you, you read a story and you watch the story progress. No, it's, it's not like that at all. It's apocalyptic symbolism where truth is communicated through symbol. And a lot of times we'll have the, another look at the same thing from a different point of view. And it intensifies and it grows so we've had this series of sevens, haven't we? Seven letters to the churches. It's to all the church. Seven, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven visions. And soon we're going to get seven bulls. And they're all pondering this time we could call the church age. This age between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. It's to help us endure through this time of tribulation. And so... We know we've got to take it symbolically. If we, if we read this like chronological history, it'll get us in trouble. And here's one example. This is the fourth time we're looking at final judgment. Okay? It's the fourth time. If it, was, if it was chronological, the final judgment, well, we'd be done, wouldn't we? But we're looking at it again. And so it's that picture. We, we're seeing things in more depth, more intensity, more clarity. Um, and of course, we know at this point, these symbols are richly informed by the Old Testament. The way we know what John is saying to us is to see how the symbols worked in the Old Testament, the historical context of the time. That helps us put it together today. But what we're seeing most of all is that Jesus is king. And he wins. And all of his people will share in his victory. Therefore, endure. That's the message of the book. And as, so as we're walking through it, we're seeing all these Old Testament ideas, right? They're pointing us to Christ, how he fulfills it all. He finishes it all. So here we are in chapter 15 now. We're introducing seven bowls of wrath with which the, the wrath of God is finished. And again, I want to I just say there, there's a strong symbolic aspect, right? Like, do you envision wrath being a liquid mixture, 
that actually is poured out of a cup. Uh, come on, right? Um, no, it's not like that, but it's, it's symbolic, right? And there's things to learn from that image about God's wrath, specifically that number seven, right? It's coming full bore here. It's coming in completion. Moreover, this symbolic aspect, I'm going to resist trying to overinterpret it, as we're going to see next week. These bulls poured out, they, they sound just like the trumpets, if you can remember that long ago, and it reminds you just like the plagues of Exodus, it sounds just like Exodus part two, part three, except there's this intensification. Instead of these plagues landing on unrepentant Pharaoh, they're landing on the unrepentant world at large. And so that's where we're moving in on. But so just not to get, not to miss for the forest for all the trees. What's the, what's the main point of what's coming here? What's, what's the author saying? Guess what's going to come in fullness at some point, in some way, the wrath of God is going to come. It's going to come hard. It's going to come heavy. It's going to come powerfully. The wrath of God is going to come. How do I sound as I, as I say that, right? I, as I say, the wrath of God is going to come, I envision myself like, I should, should I be at the street corner, you know, with one of those, uh, oh, what's it called? It's slip in my mind, you hit the button. Yeah, you know, a bullhorn and maybe wearing a sandwich board, you know, like turn or burn, you know. Uh, and you're, oh, you know, we all, mm, that's maybe not as persuasive or thoughtful as we hoped it could be. Um, I, was, I was asked once, are you a hellfire and, brim, and brimstone, you know, preacher? I, I don't know. Um, certainly, when people teach the wrath of God, it's like sometimes they forgot that Jesus came to save sinners. And they forget that God's gracious and merciful and forgiving, right? And so, so we don't want to do that. Uh, that's not the way I want to teach the wrath of God. But I think in today's world, it's far more likely you'll go to a church and you'll never hear that God has any wrath at all about anything. In fact, you'll get this impression that it would be the worst thing God could ever do to have any wrath. So let's just correct that. There's no one more loving than our God. And let me tell you, there's no one more wrathful than our God. It's, it's both, right? They're both true. So we're walking through this passage and it just lands on us. You know, and so here I'm going to quote the Apostle Paul and what he gave at a sermon in Athens to the intellectual elites. Listen to what Paul said, Acts 17, 30 to 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So that's just this, let's land the plane right there. Um, God's going to judge the world through Jesus Christ. And that is cemented as true because he rose from the dead, just as he said. But this message of wrath isn't it ultimately just to condemn and condemn alone? It's to give an offer that we might repent and come to Christ. We might, that we might look to God and his mercy and his kindness and be saved from his wrath. But wrath is coming. And we remember verses 5 to 8 from our text today. You know, you get this window opened into this 
the holy presence of God, this heavenly tabernacle. And, and who, do, you know, who are the characters in this wrath coming? First, you have holy angels, and you, you see all you need to see about who they are and the way that they're dressed. If you notice the way they're dressed, they're, they're clothed a lot like Jesus in the beginning of the book. And it shows that they are holy. They are pure. They are righteous. Wouldn't you agree that so often justice is perverted in our world today because it is enacted by those who are fundamentally unjust in themselves? Uh, it, it, we try, it comes, out, it comes out grossly perverted so many ways. There's a thousand examples of that. And partly because those enacting it are unjust in themselves, the way they believe, the way they think, the way they act. But the, the clarity is not here. Not here. These tools or, or instruments of the wrath of God are in themselves holy and just. And it's, it's clear there will, there will be no miscarriage of justice here. There will be no overreaction. There will be no underreaction. There will, there will be no excuses. It's just done with surgical perfection. It's justice from the one who's perfectly just. Moreover, the idea of golden bowls. Why, why that? Well, again, um, when you get a symbol in Revelation, where should we look, church? The Old Testament, okay? In Chronicles, for instance, you read about the vessels of the temple and how they need to be pure gold. Why is that? Um, well, it's, it's telling you something about the value and beauty of who God is. And that we, we want to offer our best to him because he is the best and he's holy and true and perfect and beautiful. And so, you know, what's the symbolism doing here? Why does the idea of wrath get poured out of a golden vessel from the temple of worship? Well, it's just to show you, I think, in part, that the wrath is coming because we've denied what's beautiful and we've denied what's glorious. We've denied even God's godness. We've challenged the core of the universe. And justice in his beauty and holiness and glory will come as a response. His glory will be upheld. Uh, moreover, you saw these golden bowls are given by living creatures. You'd, ha you'd have to go back into earlier places in Revelation to remember them. My interpretation on this is I think they represent, in a way, all creation. You know, sometimes in the Old Testament, creation itself will stand as witness against people. You know, we were Adam and Eve, especially Israel, meant to be, meant to represent God and steward what he has given for his glory, the good of their neighbor. And part of what they steward is creation, right? Creation is the whole context of our stewardship. That's where we live and move and have our being and eat and drink and all the rest. And so sometimes creation will stand as witness against God's people, saying, we've seen how you believe the lie, you denied God's word, and you went after idols, and we testify against you. And I think that's part of what's going on here. Why is it living creatures giving the bowls to the angels? It's almost like they're standing as witness saying, we see what the world deserves. This is what you should pour out in justice. And so that takes us then to 7 and 8, which are just these kind of verses of trembling. I'll just read them to you again. 
One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels the seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So see that, number one, he lives forever and ever. Part of that is where are you going to go to get away from this wrath? You won't be going away from him. There is the option of going to him. But you won't be getting away. He lives forever and ever. there's, There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. Moreover, verse 8, the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and his power. It happens several times in the Old Testament when God will come to the tabernacle of the temple. And it's just, even the priests, we have to stop. It's too much. Uh, the vision Isaiah has in uh, was Isaiah 6, right? He sees the glory of God and he's, he's the prophet is undone. He's down. It's, it's too much. Woe to me. I'm a sinner. And so here you see even this heavenly sanctuary. It says no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Everybody's like, what's the word? In holy awe and reverence while God is like flexing his glory. It's too much to handle. It's awe-inspiring. So, Here we see, I mean, it's like, what are we to do with this? It's like God's wrath has been building up almost like a volcano and now explodes. Is it because God's petty or bitter or having a tantrum? Not at all. That's not the way you should see this. It's more that God has been so eternally patient, giving opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent. Part of what should be our mind of this text is the exodus. Um, you remember what Egypt was doing to Israel, right? Enslaving them, murdering their children. Think of God's patience there. Did God just come and like wipe them out right there first day? How, how long did he take? How many chances at repentance did he give? Over and over and over again. And maybe after a while, if you're one of God's people, you're like, could you, f- can we move forward now? Maybe, maybe we feel that way sometimes as Christians. Can you come back? Now? We're supposed to want that, right? We sang it. We pray it. Can you come back now? Can you come back now? He waits and he waits and he waits in his mercy. But look at what the world does, and maybe you've done it before too, with God's mercy. You know, imagine if every time you really did a bad sin, like, you know, a finger fell off. Ah! I'll never, I'll never go to that website again, you know? Like, I'll never treat somebody that way again. Because, ah, another, you know. You, you, you sin and rebel against God, and the sun's still shining, and the wind's blowing, and, and maybe even in your sin, you got the promotion. Or, or you, you got the, what, kind of what you were looking for. It hit the fix, and you think, ah, is this really a thing? Look at Psalm 36, Psalm 36, 1 to 2. This is what the human heart does with God's patience, I think, sometimes when it comes to his wrath. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. So this is this this voice way down inside, right? Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. Ah, God, it's not a big deal. And then look, verse 2. He flatters himself in his own eyes. His iniquity cannot be found out and hated. You ever flattered yourself in this way? God's not that big of a deal. Subtext, I am. Uh, 
he doesn't really see it. And even if he did, he wouldn't really hate it. Guess what we're doing there? You're flattering yourself. He is holy and worthy of fear and reverence. He does see it. And he does hate it. And then you add to that, like look at something like Romans 2, verse 5. This is a verse written to religious people who think they are good on their own and don't need the gospel. Romans 2, verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So just listen to that again. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So there is going to be a day of wrath. And when we won't repent, did you, did you hear that phrase, storing up? The, the Greek word there means like to gather, to heap up, to accumulate. It's like you're investing and you're getting a pretty good interest rate on it. And I just think of my life. You know, we sang a song this morning. Uh, thou hast not left me, though I oft left thee. Have you ever thought of your own life if you didn't have Christ and what I would have stored up? Wrath-wise? I, ca- I can't even put, I can't put an end on that. I can't put a finish on that. It, it feels infinite. It was against an infinite God, and I did it over and over and over and over and over. I didn't just break my standard, I broke his. Do you, do you see? And then you add that up with the whole world and all its systems and all its crimes and all its deceptions and all its twistedness and corruption. And God's been, I think mostly he's just ridiculously patient. What has city after city and nation after nation and community after community deserved day after day? And yet it's another, it's another sunny day and the rain falls again and the crops still grew and it's storing up. And, and that's, that's part of what Revelation is telling you. Hey, Christian, don't despair. It's not like God has forgotten. Hey, and if you're laissez-faire with God and you don't think sin's a big deal, hey, just, just be aware, it's coming. And it'll come in sevens which means it's coming in fullness, and he sees, and he hates it. He's going to complete his wrath. So what do you think of this? You know, I realize our cultural moment seems almost to despise the idea that God could do such a thing as have wrath. I think if you just kind of take the the pulse of the moment, it's like we have plenty of reasons to be mad at God, right? Right? Think of what he allows in our lives. We've got, we got a list of reasons we can be mad at him, but does he have anything to be mad at us for? I mean, how could he? Right? And it's almost like he's evil for being angry. But I don't even think that's fair, and here's why. Because I think you get angry at injustice sometimes. So I'm not talking about the kind of angry we have when, you know, somebody slights our ego. Ah, they cut me off on the highway, I'm mad. I'm not talking about that, Okay. That's, a, that's like a you problem, right? Um, but have you seen evil before? You heard it in the story. You saw it on the news. You, you see it in a situation. You, you saw it in history. And something in your heart, it was more righteous anger. And you thought, that is wrong and has to stop. Somebody stop that. And you were angry. Did any, have you seen that before? 
I hope you've seen that before, right? If, if you've never felt that, something might be wrong with you, right? I mean, if God was never angry, like, is he paying attention? And then imagine him being morally pure. Because here's the thing, you and I most of the time sort of hate evil. And I know that's true because we still do it. We sort of hate evil. We excuse some evil. We see this evil as being, well, and that one's, well, that one's worse. You know, we, we're, we're not really good at judging evil because we kind of like it sometimes. Imagine, it's hard to do, but imagine being holy, the author of life, the righteous one who always and totally hates evil because he always and totally loves what is good. And friends, God's not going to leave things as they are forever. He can't leave it like this forever. Aren't you glad? He, he won't leave it like this forever. He will clean up and reclaim what is his. He will destroy his enemies. He will answer the challenges. He will wipe away evil and make things new. The wrath will be finished. Somebody give me an amen. Yeah. Now the throne. Verse 2. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast in its image, number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. The sea of glass should take you back to the throne, okay? In the context of Revelation, that's where the sea is. It's before the throne of God. And, and some translations maybe are better, like a sea of crystal. Glass, you're like, eh, crystal, that's, I don't know. Is that better, crystal? Sea of crystal. What does this mean? Well, it gets at God's sovereignty. So often in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation, the sea is the place of chaos and evil and things are uncontrolled. So one, one illustration in Revelation 13, where'd the beast crawl out of, remember? He's crawling out of the sea. So it's the idea, it's this source of chaos and evil. And life feels like that, right? We're, we're in the seas of life. It's out of control. It seems meaningless, this evil, this suffering, and so I think when you get to the throne and you see the sea looking like glass. Anybody ever water skied before? When do you want to water ski? When it's like glass, right? And you just get out there and you're like, and you, you turn and what does it sound like? You know, it's like smooth. And I don't think they were water skiing back in the context of Revelation. Um, but I think it's an illustration to show you that in God's sovereignty, he's so wise and sovereign and just and powerful and in control that all the chaos and evil of the world, he's got it. He's in control. It's not, it's not out of control. He's working in it, in his grace, in his justice. I think part of it being mingled with fire, uh, one commentator I heard said, uh, I think he's right here. He said, sometimes in our lives, the evil and suffering, it's like opaque to us and that we can't see. God, what are you doing? Why, why are you doing this? Why did you let it be like this, right? We all have hard questions like that. I don't see how it, how, how it works right here. It's too much. It's too painful. And it's just this promise to trust mingled with fire. It's crystal God is able to see and know what he's doing and why and how. So it's a picture of his sovereign control. And who's right there next to this sea? 
there's this group of people standing beside the sea of glass with harps. And you know how they're described? They're described as the conquerors. They conquered. So in Greek, it's nikao, right? Which is where there's a certain company. Have you heard it? Nike, okay? Uh, Except it doesn't mean just do it. It means uh, overcome. And here's this people who have overcome. And, And who have they overcome? The beast, its image, the number of its name. Okay, so now if we're here going, oh, the beast again, and the mark of the beast, and the number of its name, we went through that, right? And I know (laughs) you've all figured it out at this point, so I'm just going to summarize it for you. Who's the beast? The political, economic culture of this world that wants to pressure you to not be faithful to the gospel and to following Jesus according to his word. It's our spiritual enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil that want to pull you away from Christ and following him according to his word. They want you to compromise in that bad way where you compromise the truth of Jesus or compromise what it means to follow him because of the pressure, right? Sometimes it's economic pressure. If you stand for Christ, you won't be able to participate in the business world or it's a relational pressure or it's just all sorts of things and they want to push you away from Christ. And so to conquer then... To conquer, then, is what? Is to remain faithful to Christ. It's not about perfection. It's about, and this is what the sign of the beast is about. Listen, you don't have to worry about some conspiracy group, you know, tattooing you on the hand while you weren't looking and now you've lost your salvation. It's not what this is about. It it's, signifies the spiritual reality of who owns your heart. Who do you trust? Who do you love? Who will you live for? Because remember, there's a a different mark too. If you belong to Christ, you've been marked. Jesus has written his name on your forehead. So to conquer then means to to trust and follow Christ faithfully despite the pressure. Look at Revelation 12, 11. Revelation 12, 11. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, And by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even to death. Did you hear that? They've conquered him by the blood of the lamb. What's that mean? You trusted the gospel, right? Jesus died for you. And by the word of their testimony. What does that mean? You speak and live the truth faithfully. For they love not their lives even to death. What does that mean? Even the worst pressure they could put on you, you wouldn't leave Christ. That's what it means to conquer. And so I love to see this. What are the conquerors holding? It's not bazookas. It's not street signs. What are they holding? They're holding harps. Harps. And some of you are like, I don't have a musical bone in my body. I don't even know what to do with this thing. Let's just believe, right, that when you get there, it'll be, like, downloaded into you. Or at least you'll have, like, thousands of years to practice. I don't know, I don't know how it works. But we're going we're gonna to play these things. Um, and why is it harps? Why is it singing? 
here before the throne. Because you've never been loved like this by somebody who is this. This one saved you and brought you near. And he did it like that as you look out at the scope of it. He did it like that. He saved you. He kept you. He brought you near. He, he turned that sea that you thought was going to be too much. In the end, he made it like glass. He brought you near, and so you sing. Oh, Christians. When we meet together, I want us to sing with all our hearts. I want to give you all just permission more and more to sing your heart out to the Lord. And you might say, well, I'm not a great singer. And I'll just tell you that doesn't really have anything to do with it. It's an expression together of our hearts and how we feel about this one. And we sing, right, in this life, we sing in lament pour out our cares and our concerns and our pains because even the underlying theme there is we hope in this one. You've made us promises. We believe you. We sing the truth. We remind ourselves who Jesus is and what he's done. We tell ourselves that true story and we sing in worship because we, you aren't just to believe in this God. You are to love him. He didn't just forgive you. He loves you. And so we sing. What are we singing? Well, we've seen the finish, wrath is coming. We've seen the throne, now the song. How could the idea of God's wrath move you to sing? A few ways. Number one, verse three. They sing, great and and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Well, what are we supposed to do with that? You read through the Bible, and God's people are often pondering his deeds, aren't they? Uh, This is probably a quote from Psalm 111. You're pondering what God has done throughout history and what he will do to deliver his people. Moreover, in context, the first thing we're singing is the song of Moses. What does that mean? Well, if you go back and read Exodus, I think it's Exodus 15, Moses actually writes a song right after what? The wrath of God pouring out on Egypt. Just remember that for a moment. Would that make you sing? Imagine being, imagine being an Israelite, okay? Imagine your baby cousin was, was killed by the soldier. Imagine your family's been under slavery for years and years with no end in sight. Imagine you've been called less than human. Imagine the plagues begin, and they're falling on Egypt. And imagine you hear the promises, we're going to bring you out to a promised land. We're going to, you're going to be free, free to worship God, love your neighbor, know his law. We're, we're going to get you out of here. We're going to save you. And, and you have this enemy that there's no way you could defeat. It's the most powerful nation in the world. Who are you? You have nothing. You have no strength. You can't defeat them. And you're trying to believe, and, and maybe you barely made it through that evening, right? The angel of death's going to come and kill the firstborn, and, and we'll get to that. And you, and you made it through that, and you're starting to believe, and you've seen it. It was dark over there. It was light over here. And, and then you're marching out, and you get to the ocean, the big sea in front of you. And, uh, and then behind you, here comes, here comes the army. And, and you, you, 
You're there with your grandkids. You can't, you can't fight this army. It's, it's not an option. So you have the army behind you and the, and the sea in front of you. And what do you do? Well, I know you guys here being so full of faith, you would have said to your neighbor, it's okay. The Lord has promised. He'll come through to us because that's the way we always live every day, right? But for some people who might be weaker in faith, they, they would think God has flaked on us. There's no way out. What has he done? He's led us out here just to kill us. And then, and then Moses says, be still and wait and see what the Lord does for you. And then you're rubbing your eyes. You cannot believe it. Can you imagine? The sea opens. And it's time to walk through. And I imagine, you know, some people, they're walking through, like, with skates on. They're excited. They're like, this is, this is amazing. And they're full of faith, and they're walking through, and other people are... Didn't take a swimming class when I was a kid, right? Walking through slowly. But which one made it through? The one confident or the one timid? They both made it through. They walked through in faith. And then the Egyptian army, let's go in after them. Let's get them. And I, and I like to imagine there was at least one Egyptian soldier, you know, putting it all together, putting the math together at this point. Blood, flies, frogs, angel of death. He just opened an ocean. His people went through, and then your, then your commander's like, let's go! And was there one guy who thought, nah, I feel like this is a setup, you know? Ah! But the, the, the army goes in, and what does God do? Just crushes them. And there you are on the other side. You made it through, and all your enemies that want to enslave you and ruin you and persecute you are gone. And what would you do? You'd sing. <laughs> That's what you'd do. <laughs> you'd sing. That's the point. The wrath of God shows you, Christians, that your God is almighty over the nations, and nothing can stop him from saving you. Nothing can stop him from saving you. See, so sing. He's fighting for us, He's the almighty God of the nations. That's one thing to sing about. Second thing to sing about, verse 3, they sing, Just and true are your ways. Just and true are your ways. Isn't it good to know that there will be true and actual detailed justice done? I mean, some of you have been, you've experienced like legitimate, hard, abusive things. And we all know stories of people who have experienced horrible horrible things, and we know of world leaders who've done crimes beyond our imagination, and it seems like there's nothing can really bring justice after that. And so much of, of, of our justice is incomplete and so, sort of, kind of, and will there ever be actual justice done? You know what the wrath of God tells you? Yeah, eternal justice will be done. Eternal justice will be done. And let me tell you, your heart needs this. Your heart needs this. You need this in order to be able to rest, to be able to forgive, to be able to love your enemy. Look what Paul says, Romans 12, 18, and 19. Romans 12, 18, and 19. Paul writes, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Then in verse 19, beloved, Never avenge yourself. And what's the key word there? Never. And what does that mean in the Greek? 
Never. So if you were like, well, what about that one time? No. But, but that one? No. Never. Never avenge yourselves. And that sounds really great sitting here in a fairly comfortable room, but when evil has been done, that is not an easy message. You feel like you're denying that the evil that occurred. You, you feel like there's something lopsided in the universe that something needs to be fixed. But here, here's, here's how this works. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. You think he's up for it? You think he can give vengeance more clearly, more accurately, more precisely, more fundamentally, more powerfully? You, you think he could do it? He can do it. And guess what that enables in you? You don't have to do it. In fact, you can't do it. Leave it to him. He'll repay. You'll find new resources for forgiveness, for sleeping at night, for hope for the future. I'm going to read you a, a longer quote here. I stumbled onto this. I think it was through a, a Tim Keller article. There's a Croatian theolo theologian named Miroslav Volf. And, um, you know, being from Croatia, if you know anything about the history of that nation, he and that nation, there's, there's been some hard things experienced. And he writes a lot about the importance of the wrath of God enabling people not to take violent vengeance. So I'm going to read to you this quote. It's long, but I hope it's helpful for you. It is to me. Here's what Wolf says. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. He continues, in a world of violence where we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or humans, human violence, most people who insist on God's nonviolence, Wolf says, cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly sanctioning its use by others. They deem the talk of God's judgment irre irreverent, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands. Persuaded presumably that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges. My thesis, Wolf says, that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who's inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which, Wolf says, is where a paper that underlines this chapter was originally delivered. This is real for him. So he says, imagine, among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude towards violence. The thesis I would give them, would, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you would discover... It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the, the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. 
in a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that thesis will invariably die. Do you see what he's saying? When legitimate evil has been experienced, the knowledge that God brings justice enables you to forgive, to be nonviolent, and ultimately to sing. Last point. Sing before God's wrath because it shows he's worthy of worship. Verse 4, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. Your righteous acts have been revealed. So the saints here are seeing, we see you, God. We see you. You're holy. You're worthy of glory that we would see your beauty and value you and, and live for you and praise you because of who you are. You're worthy of worship. That's part of why the, the wrath is coming. He's worthy of it. hasn't been given to him. But they also say you will be worshipped. So now here's the big question. Stay with me. This big question. This text looks out on the nations and sees that sevenfold wrath is deserved. And yet it also says, look, there before the throne are all the nations worshiping. How can it be that those who deserve wrath are there escaping the wrath? How can it be that those who haven't worshipped as they should are now brought in to see and worship? How can this be? Well, again, we remember, we remember the Exodus, right? And, and that, that, that ultimate plague, right, where the angel of death was going to come and, and, and God was going to take the firstborn. And you think that's harsh. And God says, well, Pharaoh's been taking my firstborn over and over and over and over and over again. And I've warned him and he won't stop. So justice is coming. It's going to fit the crime. I'm going to take the firstborn. So, but can the Israelites say, oh, the Egyptians, they're bad. And hey, we're good. We don't need to sweat it. No. In fact, on their own, they'll face the same penalty because they are the same kind of sinner. Everyone's a sinner. So what did God do? Do you remember? What did he do? The Passover lamb. And it must have seemed so strange at the time. Kill the lamb, put the blood on your door, and then when the angel comes, if he sees the blood of that lamb dying instead of the firstborn, that substitutionary event, when he sees the blood there, he'll pass over. Did you notice in this text in Revelation God's people are singing not just song of the song of Moses, but the song of the, the Lamb. You know what the true Exodus is? It's that God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he lived the perfect life. Not a shred of wrath deserved in his life, only praise and glory and honor. And yet as a lamb, he offered himself on the cross, taking on himself every drop from the bowl of wrath that you and I deserve for our sins, poured out completely on Jesus instead of us. That's true for you if you will trust yourself to him. And Jesus rose from the dead showing the victory of what he had done, that truly, for all of God's people, the wrath of God, what did Jesus say on the cross? It is, it's finished. Not one drop from these seven bulls will touch you in any fundamental way. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Jesus is the Lamb of God who saves us from the wrath we deserve. And that's the heartbeat of our song, Revelation 1.5. To him who loves us, it's Jesus. What is, what is it, folks? To him who what? He loves us. And he's, what has he done? He's freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. That's our song. And we can sing in the face of the wrath of God because when God brings his final wrath, that's our Red Sea moment. When evil, death itself, in final judgment is destroyed and we go to the promised land. The new heavens, the new earth, new bodies together. And guess what we'll do? We'll sing. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We thank you that you are a God of wrath. And Lord, it's terrifying and it should be. Uh, But we thank you for Christ who saves us from it. Lord, I pray you'd help us to sing. Let us see ourselves rightly. Let us not presume on our goodness apart from Jesus, I pray. For anybody here who doesn't know you, that they would turn themselves to Christ and plead his mercy and look to him and they would know, Jesus, that you have saved them, that your work is for them. I also pray, Lord, for, oh, there's there's friends and family in our minds, Lord, who don't know you. And, uh, and we think of the wrath of God, and Lord, we, we pray that we would inspire, be inspired to share the gospel with those in our lives, Lord, that we would be able to winsomely, clearly, lovingly tell the truth about what's coming, but what Jesus has done to save us, and that you would turn our friends, our families that we're thinking of, Lord, that we, you, would, you would turn them to you. And Lord, help us to sing no matter what comes. This life can be hard. You've told us that. There's trouble, there's tribulation, there's persecution, Lord. Let us see again who you are, what you've done for us, and know um, you will come through in justice and salvation, and you will save. We love you for this, Lord Jesus. We pray it in your name. Everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.